So I'm really excited to kick off our Advent series this morning, and I'm going to get right into it. The title of my message is A Community of Justice. And speaking of justice, we live in a really strange time, especially uh, when thinking about that term and how it's used and how it's, uh, like, for example, we live in this time where there are many people who are becoming less Christian, but actually more religious. And the reason that's so is what uh, is, uh, has to do with a prediction that was made by this particular sociologist that I heard about back in the 80s. And this particular sociologist's prediction was that as the Western world, and specifically the United States, became less, less Christian, we wouldn't become less religious. In fact, what he, what he prophesied, as a non-believer, you know, what he prophesied was that uh, as we became less Christian, our Christian faith would just be replaced with our political faith. And that the way that people see and view and practice their politics would actually start to become religious in a sense. There would be a gospel message of salvation for the society. There would be a way to become baptized in. There would be dogma and doctrine that you could never question no matter what, or you'd be excommunicated. There'd be conversion stories. There would be an eschatology, you know, of grand vision of the future. So there is this uh, prediction that the way that we understand our political beliefs would actually replace our Christian ones. And that's exactly happened, has it not? And so, in one sense, we have people that are talking about justice more than ever, and, and often justice causes are at the root of our politics and our political fervor. But then, we also live in a time where we are so aware of all of the various injustices that are happening across the world, from terrorist attacks, to genocides, to poverty, to starvation, to homeless, like we're so aware of it all that we actually become numb to it. And we become desensitized to it. Oh, it's another school shooting. Man, we're sad for six seconds or six minutes, and then we move on with life. And it's just kind of how we've been conditioned because we're constantly hearing about all these various injustices in the world. So it's like simultaneously we're numb and desensitized to justice matters while we live in a time where people are sort of using justice matters as their new religion more than ever. So we live in a really strange time around justice. And uh, despite all of that, Jesus calls us to be a community of justice. And what's really great is that the biblical conception of justice was there in the minds of followers of Jesus thousands of years before the left or the right's version of justice. The kingdom of God is actually the term they used to describe the world of justice, that, among other things, but the world of justice that God was bringing into this fallen, corrupt world. That we, as being people of the kingdom, get to exhibit and be a part of and reflect and cling to. So we're going to talk about that. And as we, as we dive into what it looks like to be a community of justice, one thing that would be good to understand is what was sort of the landscape of the world around justice and injustice when Jesus showed up? You know, I think that would be important to 
understand if, if he talked about justice, what exactly what he's, was he talking about? If he talked about justice matters, if he referenced certain justice causes, uh, what exactly were those? Well, let me just give you a quick review on like the day in the life of someone in the Roman Empire in the first century. And I, uh, this is from, if you're interested, it's from a book called The Roman Empire in the New Testament. 140 pages, great book. So, first, some historians suggest that 3% of the population in the first century in the Roman Empire consumed 65% of the production. So, in other words, 3% of the people ate 65% of the food. 3% of the people wore 65% of the clothing, had 65% of the shelter, etc. And the reason for that was that you have these two classes in ancient Rome. You've got the elites and the non-elites. There's no middle class because heavy taxation uh, from the elites onto the non-elites that kind of funded the, the, you know, this Roman aristocracy, their way of living. Uh, that The taxation was so burdensome that people really couldn't rise out of the social standing they were born into. Uh, so... Resulting from that, most non-elites were living in poverty, below the subsistence level often, and, and they would be below the subsistence level. They'd have you know, less food than they needed when they had a poor harvest, because most were farmers or fishermen or you know, had some kind of trade around gathering food, because could, they could trade for stuff they needed with the food that they raised, and they could feed themselves. But when there's a low harvest, when you don't catch a lot of fish, etc., you have to ration because the taxation levels don't change. And so you're still giving away X amount of fish, X amount of crops, and you're keeping just a tiny bit for yourself. And that means you have less seed to plant next year if you're a farmer. And so there's a cycle of poverty that existed. And because of that, there was also malnutrition. And you ever wonder why there are so many people in the New Testament who are blind or deaf or have limb deformities. And a lot of this went back to vitamin D and vitamin A deficiencies that people had because they could not eat, a, uh, they couldn't get proper nutrients from the diet they had. And, and the sad thing was that everything in the Mediterranean world that was needed to live and be healthy, like to have a healthy diet was there, but the taxation was so excessive and all the best stuff was especially taken. And so people really had to just kind of eat what they had. And so malnutrition resulted in blindness, deafness, limb deformities. Disease obviously was rampant, smallpox and other things because of the lack of modern medicine. So uh, with all that in mind, infant mortality was super high. 50% uh, of children died before age 10 in the Roman world. Half died before they were 10. Um, average lifespan for non-elites was 30 or 40. It was 60 or 70 for elites. Um, the legal system was all jacked up. They had courts and stuff and judges, but punishments for crime were tailored not to the actual crime itself, but to your social standing. So if you were in poverty, you'd get punished way worse for the same crime. Um, infanticide was a common practice, so the murdering of infants. And essentially what the, the practice was in the Roman world was if you didn't want more kids, if you, especially if you didn't want another daughter, because of course male sons were prized and, and female children were, to, were tolerated, um, infants would literally be left on the side of the road 
in certain places and just left to die of exposure. And uh, just horrible, horrible. Um, abortion was a common practice. There were certain herbs that, that they, people discovered would trigger miscarriages. And uh, no one had a right to bodily autonomy. So in the, in the Roman world, if you were a rich Roman man, um, uh, excuse me for the term, but, or for the graphicness, but uh, sexually you could um, use any male or female servant or any woman whenever you wanted, and it, there's, rape wasn't a concept. It was just kind of the world, that no one had bodily autonomy. And Rome obviously uh, brutally tortured and executed anyone who rose up in order to maintain this awful, uh, this domination that they had over the society of the day. And you think about uh, how Jesus died with the crucifixion. Um, the crucifixion was one, excruciatingly painful. Two, it was prolonged. And three, it was extremely public. And so really what the Romans did is they kind of crafted the perfect execution method to enforce continued compliance of their subjects. Because when someone was crucified, they, they would take them days to die sometimes. They'd be in agony and everybody would be seeing it. And everybody would be thinking, no way do I want to be the next person up on that cross. So I'm just going to put my head down, continue to do my best in this world. And not to mention, you know, you read through the New Testament. I mean, Herod killing all of the two and under male children. Can you imagine just the atrocity of that? Um, so all this to say, this was the world that Jesus was born into. A world that was full of injustice, pain, and suffering. And this the pain and the suffering and the injustice of the Roman world was why the message of the kingdom of God was so inspiring and uh, so received by the people of the day. And if you know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about Jesus' uh, seminal, his, his primary message, the, the main thing that he preached while he was on the earth, which we'll read it now in Mark 1, uh, 14 and 15. Jesus came to Galilee. This is the first thing he's ever said publicly. Proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. To every single person who was suffering under injustice in the Roman world, this was a message of liberation and of freedom. Now, we don't take it that way because we've been trained to understand this verse to mean something else. Theologians call it the reductionistic gospel, and uh, what it is is that we've understood this verse to mean, we'll start with time is fulfilled. Time is fulfilled, meaning God has decided to send the Savior. The kingdom of God has come near. You're going to get to go to heaven. If, and then the second part, which is the most important, you repent of your sins and believe in the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus died for you and was raised for you so that you could have new life. That's sort of the way that we've been taught to understand this verse. And there's so many problems with that. I mean, number one, this is before Jesus died and rose again. So the gospel here couldn't have meant the death and resurrection of Jesus. Here's, I think, the way that the first century hearers would have understood this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom has come near. 
The promise of God to rescue his people and do away with all of the brokenness and fallenness of the world, that is happening now. That's what Jesus was saying. Repent, so change the way you think. That's what the word repent means more literally in Greek than be sorry for your sins. Repent, so change the way you think and believe this good news of the kingdom so that you can see and live in the kingdom. This is the way that, this is the understanding of this verse that uh, the first century people would have had, and this is what Jesus was actually saying. And so we really have this reduced version of the kingdom. We view the kingdom as just getting individual salvation, but it is so much more from that. If you read through all of the Old Testament prophets, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, etc., you'll find so many promises of what this coming kingdom would look like. It would astound you. Let me just give you a, a quick summary list of them. Uh, leading up to till Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near, we have, this, we have all of these promises that the prophets were talking about. So number one, God will be with us. Number two, God will save us. God will comfort us. God will forgive us of our sins. God will liberate us. God will heal us physically. God will raise us from the dead. God will be a good king. God will enact justice. God will be our God and us, his people. God will fill us with the spirit. God will bring peace, joy, regather his people and the nations. This is what people heard when Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. All of this stuff. It wasn't just individual salvation for sins. That was part of it, but it was so much more than that. I like how N.T. Wright in his book, How God Became King, kind of sums this up. He, uh, he comments on Mark 1 and says, Jesus was announcing that a whole new world was being born. And he was teaching people how to live within that whole new world. And so in this Advent series, as we're joining with that ancient, ancient Christian tradition of you know, simultaneously celebrating Jesus' first coming and eagerly anticipating his second coming, uh, we're going to explore um, some of these promises. So I'm doing justice today. Wilson's doing filling of the spirit. Others are going to do hope of the resurrection from the dead and um, peace. Uh, but today, if you could throw that next list up, we're focusing on God will enact justice. That's our focus for today. The promise, the kingdom promise of justice. So let's get into it. We're going, to primar we're going to be primarily for the whole series reading from the prophet Isaiah. We could read from all, all the prophets, but the thing about the prophet Isaiah that's unique is that Jesus quoted Isaiah more than any other prophet in the New Testament. So Isaiah is a pretty important one, and so we're, we're kind of just focusing on him. So go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 9 if you want, or it's going to be up on the screen. We're going to read kind of rapid, rapid fire, read through three different passages from the book of Isaiah about justice. So here's the first one, Isaiah 9, verse 7. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onwards and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's move right along into Isaiah 11, turn two chapters. Isaiah 11, 
Verse 5. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity. That's another word for fairness. For the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And finally, let's look at Isaiah 42, 3 and 4. Uh, Here we go. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his teaching. So I basically just read three different verses to convince you that it's not just one verse we're drawing on, but that this is actually a really important subject for the Old Testament prophets, specifically Isaiah. And really, the main thing I want you to take from it is just that God really cares about justice. He really does. And the inverse statement of that is true as well. God hates injustice. God despises injustice. And so contrary to how some people view Christianity and its outworking, uh, who view God as only caring about people's individual salvation, and he doesn't care about our shared life together uh, with believers and non-believers, that's just not the message we get from the Old or New Testament. God cares about the injustice of our world. He hates the injustice of our world. In fact, uh, Spurgeon hundreds of years ago said this, and I thought it was really good when commenting, uh, Charles Spurgeon, famous theologian, when commenting on um, an Old Testament passage on justice, uh, most kingdoms have an establishment of some kind, and generally it is inequitable. Here we have an establishment which is equity itself. The Lord our God demolishes every system of injustice, and right alone is made to stand. And then uh, also Derek Morphew in his, in his book Breakthrough uh, says this, As king, he loves justice and equity, what is just and right. Consistently, descriptions of divine justice are in contexts of liberation from oppression. God acts justly against the oppressors, the nations, and for the liberation of the powerless. I like this because it kind of reveals there's these two sort of modes of injustice that you can understand. One is just the injustice. Let's say that I steal something from you, right? Is that unjust? Absolutely. I am, I'm committing an unjust act against you by taking something that's not mine. Now, that's kind of one way that injustice manifests. A second way is where it's not just an unjust act, but it's an unjust act coming from a stronger, more powerful person or group toward a weaker, defenseless, and more powerless group. And while the, the Bible certainly has both conceptions of justice in it, the more common one is the latter, that God is on the side of the powerless, the defenseless, the one who's being taken advantage of, the one who is um, being attacked, God's on the side of the weak, the poor, the defenseless. The other day, I was, had this shocking experience in my neighborhood. 
So I live, I live in the neighborhood right here attached to the church, and I was outside uh, parking my car or taking out the garbage can. I forget exactly what I was doing. I was outside, though, and a neighbor across from me is a black family, and the uh, wife had come out and was getting in her car to go wherever she was going, and as she was getting out, in, uh, she was getting into her car and shutting the door, this uh, SUV came flying around the corner, and this man rolled down his window and yelled, white power, at the woman. You know, and of course, I was shocked. I'm like, like, coal rain, like suburban coal rain, like, did I really just witness that? And, and, I, and I looked at, to see how she would respond, and, and she just was unfazed. She didn't even act like she... Uh, experienced it. And, and I actually wonder, I, I don't, I, either she didn't hear it as she was like shutting the door or that was just what, how she chose to react. She's just gonna, you know, ignore it, not let it bother her, perhaps a coping mechanism that's built up from this kind of thing. And it just reminded me afresh that, man, it must be awful to have to live knowing that there's a group of people out there who hate you, think you're inferior, are disgusted with you simply because of the pigment of skin that your genetics produced in you at birth. I mean, I'm, you know, as a white man, I've never experienced that. Maybe some of you in here who are white have experienced that in some way or another. I've never experienced that. I've never just had to live with that you know, kind of enduring conscious thought that there's people out there that hate me for no reason. Um, but man, God hates that. That's unjust. You know, that, uh, you know, it wasn't just the, um, the insult, the insult that came, but it was the, the messaging behind it. God hates both of those things. And why? Because he's a God of justice. So, we're going to pause here, and we're going to do something different that we don't typically do. We're going to have a sl- small, like, discussion time. In this discussion time, what I want you to do is to turn to the person who you came with or turn to someone nearby you and answer one of the three questions that are going to be up on the screen. So throw those up. So, how have you seen God's justice in the world What has the justice of God looked like in your own life? How do you feel about the idea of kingdom justice? Go ahead and have a two or three minute discussion with someone nearby you on your market set, go. You don't got someone to talk to, just turn around, scoot over. We're friendly here. Or keep yourself, you don't have to.
About another minute, minute and a half. About another minute, minute and a half. All right, let's go ahead and start to wrap up the discussion. Let's go ahead and start to wrap up. Some of you don't know who this person is, but a lot of us here, we, uh, we know Derry Turnbow. I saw she just came back. Let's give her a round of applause. Welcome back, Derry. She's been out of town for six months doing a training school. Glad to have you back, Derry. Hi. <laughs> okay. So, God cares about justice. What does that mean for us? And how, do we live, how do we live out that ethic of the kingdom, of, of kingdom justice? Well, I just have two sort of applications for it. The first one is that The church embodies the kingdom promise of justice by being itself a community of justice. Pretty simple. Um, And we see this, that Jesus created a community of justice while he was on the earth. Um, Let me quote this book uh, from a guy named Nile Saya. It's called The Global Politics of Jesus. Jesus welcomed into his ministry those who were most marginalized in first century Jewish society. Tax collectors, women, Samaritans, Gentiles, the sick, the poor, those guilty of immorality, and children, all the while reserving his sharpest criticisms for the religious elite, namely the Pharisees, Sadducees, and teachers of the law. So what we miss when reading the Gospels with our 21st century eyes is just how radically countercultural it was for Jesus to associate with these kinds of people. It would be a really interesting exercise. We don't have time to do it this morning, though. But to just come up with a list of the most hated, uh, disgusted uh, people in our day and to, to uh, kind of compare lists and help us really understand what it was like for Jesus to do this. So he really, he created a community, like a little microcosm of justice in the midst of this horribly unjust world. When you understand all the food scarcity and malnutrition and diseases that are associated with them, it really puts a new light on Jesus healing people. And it puts a new light on him feeding the 5,000. It wasn't just like, oh, cool miracle. It was like, these are starving people and he's feeding them miraculously. These are people who have become blind or deaf or lost a limb because of malnutrition, and he's restoring that. He's restoring what the unjust world they were living in and how it had impacted their physical bodies. So 
he also taught his disciples how to live in this community of justice. And this is from uh, that book I mentioned earlier, The Roman Empire in the New Testament. In uh, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus spells out the sort of community the disciples who are committed to God's empire or kingdom constitute. This community welcomes and cares for the vulnerable and least, Matthew 18, 1 through 14. Practices reconciliation, 15 through 20, and extends forgiveness. These commitments to mercy, inclusion, service, and reconciliation differ greatly from the Roman Empire's commitments to domination, exploitation, self-enriching rule, and submission. Jesus' presence constitutes an alternative societal experience. What Jesus was doing was he was saying, hey, I want you as a community to live in a way radically countercultural to the injustice of the day and embody that justice in, your, in the church, in your group, in your community. And then it's no surprise that the early church did this. So if we read in Acts 2, 44 through 45, this is kind of like a summary statement of what the church in its early primitive days was like. Uh, the author of Acts, Luke, writes, All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And then again in uh, Acts 4, 32 and 35, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. So the early church lived out this teaching to be a community of justice in the midst of injustice. And now, I don't think we need to take those passages from Acts and be like, all right, everyone, fork over your money, common purse here at Vineyard Northwest, sell all your land. I'm not, I don't think that's the way we apply. Um, that's us confusing a descriptive truth of Scripture from a prescriptive one. But what I think it should motivate us to do is, how generous am I being with the needy people right in this room? You know, the people in this room who are... Uh, Foster families, am I support, how, could I, how might God be inviting me to support them? You know, it's kind of a shame that foster families are primarily supported by the government, not the church. You thought about that? That's not how it ought to be. I could go on and on. Um, but I love how in his book, Political Gospel, Patrick Shiner kind of sums it up with this. We must be transformed before trying to transform society. Man, read that 10 times, okay? We embody peace and justice in our communities before we have anything to offer the world. Therefore, Christians must first be involved in their churches and must prioritize helping these communities be places that reflect the coming kingdom and its values of love, justice, righteousness, holiness, and equality. And I think what that exposes is how many of us are as fervent about being a community of justice here in our local church body as we are in voting our beliefs about justice. 
It's not to shame or condemn. It's really not. But first and foremost, we're called to, regardless of what's happening out there, be a people in a community of justice. And it's from that place that we take those values that we're cultivating in community and spread them to the rest of the world. I think we get the order mixed up sometimes in the church. We want to make out there just before we focus on making in here just. This reminds me of probably two months ago now. Um, I came in for worship rehearsal on Saturday morning and there were two homeless people sleeping underneath our north entrance awning around 9 a.m. And so uh, I knew that there was some sort of event happening there later, uh, some kids event. And I, I was like, okay, I better go. You know, I might have just let them keep sleeping and wake up and go on their way. But I'm like, I better go and, and do something about this. And so I'm thinking, okay, should I just go wake them up? I probably want to bring someone with me because, you know, I don't, who knows what could happen? Should I, just, should I just call the police and ask them to come and handle it? And so I'm just, you know, just was unprepared coming into the situation. I was just trying to think of all the options. And so I call Van up, our senior pastor, and, and he's like, oh, well, first off, make sure that you get them, like, a cup of coffee and, like, some Chick-fil-A gift cards and some grit. And his, his first thought was, like, how can we be generous and bless them, you know? And I realized, oh, man. That wasn't my first thought. <laughs> that wasn't my first thought. I'm still growing in this. And, and, and so that's exactly what we did. And, and what was interesting was in the next month, this happened two more times with different people. And each time after that, uh, one of us went out to Kroger and, you know, bought, I, I went a few times and just bought like a bag full of, um, you know, not like, the most unhealthy food imaginable, which is unfortunately what usually gets donated, but I bought all the healthiest food, but still good, you know, and created this little snack bag with toiletries and stuff, and we, you know, we, we prayed for these people, and um, our facilities director and the guy doing that, Matt Senna, even, who plays Keys, he actually drove one woman like three hours back to where she lived, an hour and a half away, and, and I just, I bring that up because I think that was a learning moment for me as to uh, what the first priority ought to be for us. The first priority doesn't need to be fixing out there, although we do need to care about that. But the first priority is, are we loving and treating with dignity and blessing the people right in front of us? The people that just find their way onto our property, each other, the people right in, that we're in close relationship with, that's where we start. So how does the church embody the kingdom promise of justice? We be a community of justice. Secondly, my second point, the church embodies the kingdom promise of justice by its prophetic witness. So let me break this down. So once we commit to being a community of justice, how should Christians seek justice in their societies? How should we strive for a more just Ohio, a more just United States of America, a more just planet? 
And Christians have sort of taken three approaches to this over the years. Um, throw, you can throw those up now. Three approaches to enacting justice in society. So number one would be official partnership with the government. Number two would be the opposite, complete avoidance of all of governmental and political affairs. Usually these are communities like the Amish and those that just kind of isolate. And then three, prophetic witness to the government and the state and society around us. And you can probably guess which one I think is the best, <laughs> just by the language. Um, prophetic witness to the government. So let me break these three down. So, <laughs> you guys know me. I love whiteboards. Okay. So, uh, you can understand those three responses according to two continuums, okay? So you have passive and active. So some Christians take a more passive approach. We don't need to do anything. We just need to kind of hunker down, wait for the rapture, and get on out of here, okay? And then you have the more active approach, which is we're actually going to do something about this, okay? Uh, down here, you have how blended or distinct the church of Jesus Christ is with the government, with the state that it finds itself in, okay? So uh, on this side, you've got it's more blended. So the church and the state are, um, are, are kind of officially partnered. You might think about how in England, you might not know this, but the um, prime minister, or maybe the monarch, one of the two, still appoints the archbishop of the Church of England in Canterbury, okay? So there's this official kind of partnership between the church and the state. And then distinct would be when um, there's separation. So the church is the church, the state is the state, and, and you don't, they're, not, they're not blended together, okay? So this first quadrant would be passive and blended. I mean, that's basically like a non-Christian who doesn't care about justice, okay? So, but then uh, active but blended, so active in trying to make society more just, but where the church and the state become blended would be the official partnership approach. Down here, when the passive approach, where there's not active, there's no active effort to make the world more just, but there is a, dis a clear distinction between the church and state, that would be the avoidant approach. So the prophetic witness approach in my opinion, takes the best of both worlds. There is act, there's, an act, there's an activeness to wanting to make the world around us a more just, better place. But there still is the appropriate, and I'd say biblical, distinction between the church and the government. The church is the church. The government is the government. We're not trying to make them the same thing. Does it make sense? Okay. So, what I want to do is just ex sort of end by critiquing avoidant and, and official partnership and explaining kind of how we can live out prophetic witness. Okay, for critiquing avoidant, uh, all I'm really going to say is I 
There was a season a few years ago where I was so fed up with partisan politics, both on the left and the right, that I started just kind of adopting this view that, you know what, the kingdom of God does not come through the government under any circumstance and forget all, I mean, I was basically falling into the avoiding category. You know, forget all of it, you know, they're all corrupt <laughs> and um, we're, let's, just, let's just bring revival and that's how we'll change the country, you know. And then I read Derek Morphew's book, Kingdom Theology and Human Rights. Highly recommend it. And he essentially makes a 180-page case that every single positive advancement in the modern society and in terms of human rights that, have ev- that has ever come has come because Christians were living out their uh, convictions before Jesus. And, I mean, even, like, we don't usually think of this as a Christian human right, but like religious liberty. So religious liberty, the freedom to choose whatever religion you want, was not a human right uh, for most of human history. And uh, because it wasn't, you have stuff like the 30 Years' War in the 17th century, where between 4 and 12 million Christians, Catholic and Protestant, died because they uh, were requiring that Uh, the other side be their particular version of Christianity, not to mention other religions, you know. So there's been so much bloodshed throughout the years over people not having religious liberty. So the fact that religious liberty is uh, a nearly universal value in the Western world is a big deal, and Christians are the one, Protestant Christians are the ones that actually push that forward. So uh, also, you know, if, if, I'm just going to stop there. Um, So Avoidant is, um, it's just not consistent with Jesus and what he taught and what he did. I mean, Jesus could have went out into the wilderness and started a monastic movement and stayed separate from society, but he didn't. He lived in day-to-day life, loving on, healing, ministering to the people before him. So avoidant is not kingdom ethic. Okay, but let's talk about official partnership. So this one can be a little more complex because in one hand, it's like, man, if we could get the government to, you know, pass all these laws that benefit the church and benefit the Great Commission and benefit the kingdom as we see it, that sounds like it'd be a pretty good deal. Like, why wouldn't we do that? Where I'd start, and this is not going to be on the screen, but you can turn to John 18 if you want. Um, I would start from a theological place. So this is Jesus before Pilate. And Jesus makes, I think, the clearest delineation between the kingdoms of the world, governments, the state, and the kingdom of God here. This is what he says in verse 36. My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And so his point here is not just to say that his kingdom doesn't include standing armies, although that is one of them. His point here is to say, my kingdom does not need the tools and the agents and the vehicles of the government in order to succeed. My kingdom does not require militias. It doesn't require voters. It doesn't require elected officials or democracies. And thank God for that, because 
what would be happening in Iran right now if that were the case? There'd be no movement, of, there'd be no kingdom movement. But what we do know is that in Iran, it's one of the fastest growing Christian churches in the world. Why is that? Because the kingdom doesn't need voters, militias, or armies. Uh, again, in, in political gospel, Patrick Schreiner sums it up perfectly. We must recognize governing authorities are not ultimate. They will not establish justice. They will not help the fatherless and the widow. They will not frustrate the way of the wicked. They will not do these things in an ultimate sense. That's the key phrase. Earthly kingdoms will come and go. Only God's kingdom will endure forever and bring true justice. Viewing the civil magistrates as ultimate manifests itself in obsession over their rule. The scriptures put governing authorities in their proper positions. They will not usher in the new creation. They will not bring lasting peace. They will not bring long-term life, liberty, and happiness. Only God will do this. Now, the question is, well, does that mean that we don't care about, getting, about electing Christian people? No, we do. We need to be electing Christians, but not to make a Christian government, to have people who are salt and light and kingdom people going into that system and spreading the values and the ethic of the kingdom of God from the inside out. That's what we need. Okay. So that's kind of the theological reason, but if you look practically throughout history, when you have official partnership, it goes very badly. Not just for the church, but for the state. So uh, this is from Seeley's book again. Christians have been most supportive of human rights, in particular women's rights, racial justice, and religious freedom, when the church has maintained its distance from the state. In the centuries following Jesus, Christians led movements against infanticide, abortion, human sacrifice, pedophilia, polygamy, and slavery. More recently, they have been at the forefront of global humanitarianism, leading campaigns in favor of prison reform, universal education, women's rights, and civil rights. But where Christianity has become bound up with the state, it has frequently become complicit in terrible abuses of human rights and religious freedom. And so what he's getting at is, you know, for 2,000 years, Christians have routinely been tempted with political power. You know, it all began with the Roman emperor Constantine in the year 313, and he was the first government official in the history of Christianity to, like, privilege and favor the church, okay? So, but it's been happening ever since then. And each time it does, these well-meaning Christians begin with the noblest intentions. They begin just wanting to use the government favor they're getting to create a better world. But power eventually corrupts, especially in this setting, and which is undeniable in the fact that any place throughout history where we see the church and the state, the church and the government officially partnered, Eventually, the result of that is the state turning to violence and the church turning to corruption. It's been the story over and over and over and over again. And in fact, interestingly, right now, if you look at the 10 countries in the world where Christianity is declining the quickest, nine of them have official church, Christian church and state partnership. The only exception is Albania. The other nine are all 
rapidly declining, even though the Christian church is actually like a part of the government, okay? Conversely, you look at the top 10 places where the church is growing the fastest, none of them have official partnership. That should tell us something, (laughs) okay? So what does prophetic witness look like? Well, one, prophetic witness is when we live out as a, we live as a community of justice like we've covered. But two, prophetic witness is when we speak the truth of God's justice kindly yet boldly to the powers at be. It's when we advocate for justice, not by trying to take over the government and make it Christian, but by remaining the church of Jesus Christ and using our voice to speak and to advocate. That is how uh, we prophetically witness. And the final point I really want to make here is that for our witness to be prophetic, it can't be partisan. It just can't be partisan. You know, if Jesus were to come back today and he were to speak into America's political issues, I promise you the 10 things he would say would not be the 10 bullet point talking points of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. It would utterly transcend those categories and offend everybody. (laughs) And it should, because the kingdom of God is so much bigger than our political parties. And so if we want to be people who have a prophetic witness, not a partisan witness, you know, if we want to be people with a prophetic witness, really the first thing we've got to do is disconnect from the tentacles and the tendrils that these different parties are trying to, you know, trap us with, right? I mean, I like how Schreiner says it again. A steady diet of political propaganda from our partisan networks and podcasts will not conform us to the image of Christ. For a lot of us, step one is turn off whatever news station you're listening to. If you want a good one, if you really care about the news and you want to stay informed, but you don't know where to go, look up The Pour Over. The Pour Over is a Christian, they're committed to completely being nonpartisan, and they actually are, if you go check. I know people say that, and then they're definitely left or right leaning. Go check it out. They actually are. And multiple people in here uh, read their news. So check out The the Pour Over, like a coffee. Um. So in conclusion, um, we really need less activists, I think, and more followers of Jesus willing to be his hands and feet in addressing the injustice of everyday life. And I'm not saying we need none. Um, we do. But, but I think that being a kingdom community of justice, it, it really does look like starting here, starting with the person across the aisle from you who's in need, and us embodying that value of justice. And once we're doing that in community, we kind of have something worth taking to the world. All right, so go ahead and stand with me. Prayer teams, you can come forward.
We believe in miraculous physical healing here. And I just had a few words of knowledge I wanted to share. So first off, I feel like there are some people in here where um, there's some sort of left leg issue. It could be a knee, it could be a heel. Uh, I even feel something kind of on the bottom of my thigh. I don't know exactly what, what that is, but um, I feel like God is healing that. And I uh, also feel like for any of you in here who have one leg that is like shorter than the other due to misalignment or like actually being shorter and it's causing you back issues, I think God is healing that this morning as well. And so for any, either of those or any other healing need, please come on up. God does miracles up here every single Sunday and um, we'd love for pray to see that miraculous power come over you. Uh, so Jesus, we... Thank you for coming. Thank you for bringing your kingdom of justice. And, and, and so as we live out, um, as we live out the, the commandments and the ideas that you gave us and um, the relationship that you gave us, we at the same time long toward that day that you come again and you do away with all of the various injustices and sufferings of this world. We love you, we praise you, we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.